Now with the Lord's help, let us turn and consider words we have in this chapter we have read together. The letter of Paul to the Colossians on chapter 1. And the reading again at verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. One or two thoughts on these words. Now at the time of Paul's writing this letter, Colossae had become a very small town in uh, an area of Asia Minor that we now call Turkey. It had been a very large, prosperous town uh, down through the centuries. It had a, a very favourable, uh, fertile space of land round about it. And uh, it was conducive to having large flocks of sheep, and uh, certainly that was something upon which the economy of the area continued uh, to be built, even in the days of the Apostle. There were large flocks of sheep, and around that there was a woolen industry established, the dyeing of wool, the weaving of woolen cloth. But uh, many years before the Apostle sent this letter to Colossae, the main road between uh, east and west uh, had been passing through Colossae, through that valley in which Colossae was built. But at one point, under the Roman uh, authorities, the road was moved, and so that the road no longer went through Colossae, and it's as if it was bypassed. The main traffic didn't go through Colossae anymore, and it suffered and became a very minor town in comparison to Laodicea and uh, Hierapolis, other towns that were further up the valley. They became the boom areas where the banking was and the, the commerce was carried on. And uh, when the Apostle was writing this letter, as I said, Colossae had become a town bypassed by the commerce of the world. Something like some of the towns, maybe I shouldn't speak in, uh, in these terms, but somehow uh, the A9 road from uh, Perth to Inverness, uh, when they were building it, some of the towns were being bypassed. And um, they don't anymore receive so much traffic. Some of them do, but some of them don't. 
and some of them have suffered commercially because of that. It would bypass. Such was the situation was, was colossal. But the Apostle is writing to this small town with a small population <coughs> because it wasn't bypassed by the Gospel. Epaphras, in verse 7 of chapter 1, brought the Gospel to them. And they embraced the Gospel. And the Apostle is writing to them as those who have Embrace the glorious news of Jesus Christ, despite there being a town bypassed by much of the activity of commerce, the Lord remembered them in love and in mercy and in peace. And Paul thanks them and praises the Lord for them, and he prays that the Lord's blessing and grace and peace would be upon them. But as is nearly always the case, you find that the Christian community, wherever it is, it's beset by problems and dangers of various kinds. In our own nation, for example, there are so many things that distract the focus of the Christian. There is so much going on and so many pressures in the world that seek to deviate our affections and draws away from the things of God. And such was the case also in Colossae. In fact, Colossae had a mishmash of religions, what the expositors call, uh, call a syncretistic or a synchronism of religions coming together, a mixture of all kinds of thought. For example, there was the Gnosticism, people who thought that they had a particular access to God through the mind. There were people who derided Christ and said, well, surely Christ isn't the only one through whom we can have salvation. And you find people like that in our own generation today. Surely there is an access into heaven through all of the religions, they say. And some people in Colossae not only had that kind of pressure on them, but there was also a group that wanted to worship angels, using angels as intermediaries between people and God. And there was also, of course, a Jewish community that wanted to live an ascetic lifestyle, self-denial to the nth degree. And it's as if all of these aspects of homemade religions and heresies and philosophies of this world were brought together and there was this very unhealthy atmosphere around and within Colossae. And part of the reason that the Apostle writes this letter is that he wants to highlight Christ. And he does that in this particular chapter. For example, in verse 15, he presents Christ as the one who is the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. Verse 16, he's the all-powerful one creating all things in heaven and on earth. And he, he's holding all things together. Verse 17, he's the head of the church. Verse 18, the firstborn from the dead. Verse 19, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. And verse 20, he reconciled all things to himself by the blood of his cross, making peace, and so on. He highlights Christ. 
He focuses on him. And of course that is something that the scripture always does. Think of what the apostle writing to the Hebrews says, let us run our race with patience, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And that word, looking unto Jesus, means looking away from everything else that would seek to distract us and focusing wholly and wholeheartedly upon Jesus alone as Saviour for our souls, as our good shepherd who is able to lead us through this world safely into heaven at last. Well, that by way of introduction. Now coming to verse 21. And he focuses particularly on themselves, having spoken about the way the Lord Jesus Christ has reconciled all things to himself in verse 20. He now in verse 21 says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and so on. <coughs> you, Christian community in Colossae. And there are three things I want to highlight in relation to what he says in verses 21 to 23. I know there's a tremendous depth and breadth in everything that he says. But I'll just touch on a few things. First of all, he highlights and reminds them of what they once were. Before the gospel came and before they submitted by grace to the word of God in conversion, what were they like? You, he says, who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. These three things. And secondly, what Christ has done for them. You see what it says in verse 22? He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What an amazing statement that is. There's a million sermons in that particular phrase itself. But I'm just going to touch on it for a moment. <coughs> and thirdly, what he asks of them as they live in this world. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. He wants them to stay committed, despite the pressures they may be under, despite the kind of philosophies that may fill their ears, and the distractions that the world and the devil and the flesh may throw at them, he says, I want you to commit yourself and be stable and steadfast in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. First of all, then, he reminds them what they were before conversion. And I highlighted three things, and the first of these three things is, you were once alienated. Alienated. Now, the word means you were estranged. You were shut out. What were they shut out from? From whom were they shut out? Well, I think it's clear, first and foremost, that they were shut out from God's fellowship. Everyone who is unconverted, he is a stranger to grace 
and a stranger to God. He is shut out from the fellowship and intimacy with God. When did this happen? And how did this happen? Well, you have to go all the way back to Genesis. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 3 at verse 23, you find there that the Lord God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden. Why? Because they had sinned against him. He drove out the man and he placed an angel and a flaming sword keeping it away to the tree of life. In other words, if Adam wanted to go back into the garden to avail himself of eternal life to eat of that tree, he had to negotiate and meet up with this flaming sword of God's justice. And it says here, you were alienated. And that's the way we all are by nature. We all have been driven out. We are all strangers to grace. We are all by nature lost, hell-deserving sinners. And that's what he says to them. You were alienated from God's fellowship and from the life that is everlasting. And there is something else he says also. That they were hostile in mind. They were hostile to God. They were opposed to God. They were opposed to the truth of the gospel. Opposed to God's way of salvation in Christ. Isn't it interesting when you come and you talk to people about the way of salvation and they almost invariably suggest, well, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I'm doing the other thing and I'm certainly not as bad as my neighbour who does this, that and the other thing. I would never do that. And they base their hope for eternal life upon what they're doing. But you see what we have here. These people, and we all by nature, are opposed in our mind to God. Hostile in mind. If you were to read in the epistle to the Romans, chapter 1, verses 18 to 23, you will find there that these people to whom the apostle, or of whom he is writing, in Romans 1, verses 18 to 23, they were suppressing the word of God. The word of God had come, but what were they doing? They were stamping on it. They didn't want to hear its accusations. They didn't want to hear of the way Christ alone was able to save them. They just didn't care about God's way of salvation at all. And that's the way we are by nature. We are hostile in our mind to God to his word, to his day, to his Christ, to all that he commends to us. You know what it says in Psalm number 2, don't you? From those who refused to obey the Lord, they are portrayed for us there as those who say, we want to break his bands from They feel that the word of God is like chains around them, not allowing them to do their own thing. And what's their solution? Not to comply with what the Lord is saying, but to break free from what God is asking of them. And that's hostility in our mind. And then, of course, the third thing he says of them 
doing evil deeds. Doing evil deeds. It's as if the scripture here is saying what the psalmist said there in Psalm 24, whose hands are clean, whose heart is pure. And unto vanity, who has not lifted up his soul, nor sworn deceitfully. These people's hands are not clean. Besides the fact that their heart is not pure, and they have given themselves to vanity, and giving themselves license to do everything that pleases themselves. And you know, we do by nature what pleases ourselves. We do evil deeds. If you were to look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2 onwards, you find this idea explained a little bit more. The apostle there says, Ephesians 2, 2, that they were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works, and the children of disobedience, living in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And they were without God and without hope in the world. What a picture. Under three headings. Alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds. And we must bring this home to ourselves because it's not just talking about the people in Colossae. He's talking about the whole of mankind. For mankind by the fall lost their communion with God and have come under his wrath and curse and so made liable to all the evils of this life, the miseries of this life, to death itself and the pains of hell forever. That's the way we are by nature. But he puts this into the past tense when he's talking to them. He says, you once were alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. But what happened? Well, now they are reconciled. In verse 22, he has now reconciled. Isn't that an amazing thing? People who are alienated, enemies, doing evil deeds. Now he has reconciled. The word reconcile, as you know, has to do with taking parties who were at odds together into a peaceful relationship. Find it used so often about breakdowns in marriages and things of that nature. There was a reconciliation. They came together. There was peace. Well, this word here, Christ has reconciled these people. And literally, the word used in the Greek is to bring back fully to a former state of harmony. <clears throat> what does this mean? What was the former state of harmony that existed between Adam and God before Adam sinned and fell by his transgression? Well, if you read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, you find <coughs> the Lord saying, Let us make man in our image 
after our likeness. And then in Colossians 3.10, it says, You have on the new self, which has been renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, the Lord himself. And one more, as we have borne the image of the man of dust of the earthy, we also shall bear the image of the man of heaven. See, he's talking about something radical that has come to pass in the experience of these people. That they have been brought into fellowship with God. And not only has it been kind of a, a movement, a step, as it were, a change of lifestyle, it has actually been a change of nature. A change has come about in their heart, in their affections, in their mind, in their will. They are new creatures or new creations in Christ Jesus. And what does he say? You are now reconciled in his body of flesh by death. What needed to happen for people who were such rebels and tearaways against God to be brought into a saving, friendly relationship with him? Well, it's very interesting, isn't it? See these words in the middle of verse 22. In his body of flesh by his death. That the Lord Jesus Christ, in bringing his elect people to God, took unto him a human nature. That's what it's talking about in there in verse 22. In the body of flesh. In other words, he became very man. He became a man like you and I am human. He obviously had no sin, but he was very man of very man. And he had to take human nature because he was coming to stand as the representative of human beings who had violated his law and who had come short of his glory and whom he had loved from all eternity and agreed to come in the fullness of time to redeem them by his own blood. When Paul to the Romans in chapter 8 at verse Three, I think it is, he's talking about that Jesus Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He had flesh. And he looked as if he was like, was like every other individual in the world. But he was sinless. He was the sinless saviour. The sinless mediator. The sinless one who came to save those who had sinned against him. You see, the eternal God became man. And he takes the room and place of his people. 
as mediator. He came to pay their debt. He came to obey the law in all its details, the law that they had broken. And he obeyed it for them from the beginning of his life to the end. He magnified the law and made it honorable. But also, besides a life of obedience, he had a life of suffering because he was suffering the punishment due to his people for the sins that they had committed. So he came in obedience and he came suffering the punishment. <coughs> and his obedience was unto death and his punishment was unto death, even the cursed death of the cross. Didn't I say I have an amazing eye of prophecy looking down the centuries and he wrote about 700 years before Christ came into the world he, he says, talking about Christ he was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities the chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. When he came to Calvary, he was crucified there, the holy instead of the unholy, the just instead of the unjust, the pure instead of the impure, the obedient instead of the rebel. <coughs> What does he say upon the cross? It is finished. He satisfied God's divine justice in all its detail. He gave to God's justice and God's just demands all that was required. And it is finished, he said. And he bowed his head, giving up the ghost. What proof do we have that all that Christ has done was sufficient to reconcile his people unto God, to make peace between believers and God? <coughs> well, they used to say that the resurrection of Christ on the third day was, as it were, God's signature of approval of all that Christ had done. He rose triumphant as king, mediator, as the saviour of those whom he came to redeem. And you see here, the purpose behind all of this not only was to reconcile, but also to present you holy, this verse 22, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Reconciliation is one thing. Having the blessings of the gospel in a day of grace is one thing. But there is more to salvation than that. He giveth grace and glory 
and withholds no good from them who live uprightly. And this is what he's talking about in the second half of verse 22. He says, He has done this in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, now are going to be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Isn't it amazing? He's going to present us as if he is presenting us to God. Behold me and the children whom God has given me. He is presenting them to the whole universe. Presenting them to devils. Or at least exhibiting them before the whole universe so that everyone will know these are those who were once sinners deserving hell, but whom I re reconciled by my death on the cross. And now, through the work of the Holy Spirit, they are found totally holy and blameless and above the coach. What does holy mean? It means separate, yes. But so far as God's people are concerned, they are at last, on the day of their death, the soul is made perfect in holiness and does immediately pass into glory. But the great day of resurrection is still to come. And the bodies of the saints are going to rise, incorruptible and holy, and to be joined again with their souls so that the whole personality this perfectly holy body and soul, and he is going to present his people faultless, without one trace of sin, or even one sin of thought. Nothing will enter into heaven that worketh abomination or maketh alive. Holy and without blemish, blameless. None can find anything wrong with his people at last because he himself has undertaken to sanctify them holy. Above reproach. And they are presented before him. Whose eye examines the depth of every thought. Who knows every angle from which our thoughts come. Who knows the thoughts and intents of our hearts. And he who sees us perfectly, he acknowledges them at last as his own. And finally, what does the Apostle say to these people who have had such an amazing experience through the gospel? who were once alienated and hostile and doing evil things, now they are reconciled and that they are on the way to heaven. Verse 23, he brings in the reality of living in the world yet. I mentioned at the beginning the number of pressures there may, there may be upon a Christian. The world throws everything it can at the Christian to throw you off the rails. 
the flesh is the same. The devil uses every trick in his book that God permits him to use to deviate you from the state of narrow road. But he puts this particular burden on this small group of Christians in this bypassed little town of Colossae. And he says it's real that you have to continue in the faith stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Continue looking unto Jesus. Continue walking in the path of God's word. The Lord says, this is the way. Walk ye in it. Steadfastly, unmovable, abounding, doing the work of the Lord, not shifting from one place to another. But the focus is upon the glory ahead where Jesus is. And he has promised that all of his people will be brought to be with him at last. And our hope, our focus, must be upon him and the fulfilment of the promises that he has given to his people. Remember in John 14, when the Lord Jesus is encouraging his disciples, the fact that he had told them that he was about to leave them, their hearts were filled with sorrow. But he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's his purpose. But our responsibility is to continue in the faith. Don't mix anything in with Christ alone. You know, the Galatian church, they wanted Christ plus their own works of some kind. You mustn't do that. It's as if you devalue Christ when you bring anything else in beside him as a hope of salvation. It has to be Christ alone. In him alone is my hope. Looking to his word as the only rule he has given to direct me. And anything that doesn't square up with the scriptures, turn away from it. The scripture is the inspired word of God and receive it wholly and walk by it completely and unashamedly in our present day. You know, some of you I suppose know who David Attenborough is and he has programs that are at all, not at all sympathetic to the scriptures. He talks about evolution and the evolutionary theory. And it's not so long since he was talking about in quite dismissive terms of the argument from design. William Paley, long ago, he advanced this argument that, well, if you have a watch intricately made, there must be a watchmaker. Just didn't happen. And he was extrapolating from that well, if you have a world 
and the complexities that exist in nature, example the eye, or other aspects of the human body, or other aspects of nature, there must be a designer. You can't just say it happened on its own. It happened when it was sort of washing its hands or that kind of way of thinking at all. These things are so dangerous. That kind of flippancy with the word of God is so dangerous. And the problem is that so many people take these things as, shall we say, I say, gospel. And they just take these things on board and live their life thinking, well, it's all happened by chance and God isn't in it anyway. And we don't need God at all. Well, the scripture here says, continue in the faith. However much you may be divided, however much you may feel in the minority, always remember, one plus God is always a majority. If God is with you, who can be against you? And you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, like some people who have left, it, uh, left aspects of the scriptures and embraced other things and try and slot <coughs> these other ways of thinking into the scripture narrative. Can't be done. Can't be done. You praise God that you have the word of God, the Bible, intact. And our business is to get to know it more and ask the Lord for it to be more and more part of our thinking, part of our outlook, part of our life. We may magnify him and glorify him rather than seek to do our own thing. Is there anybody here this evening who hasn't turned to the Lord yet? There was a text I was going to quote to you. And you find it in Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. It says, Seek the Lord while he is to be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And unto our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Isn't it amazing? The wicked encouraged. The unrighteous encouraged. Not in their wickedness or in their righteousness, but encouraged to come to the Lord with the assurance given by himself that he will have mercy upon you and he will abundantly pardon. Praise the Lord for the gospel. Praise the Lord for the work of the Holy Spirit who is able to apply the word of God savingly to our hearts and to our lives. You, he said, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. May God grant it so. Amen. Lord, we thank thee for the word. 
and we pray that it may indeed find a place in our hearts <coughs> unto our eternal benefit. We pray for the blessing of the gospel to continue with every one of us. We may go from strength to strength and at last be found in thy presence in Zion. Go before us now. Bless us as we sing thy praise in conclusion. For Jesus' sake. Amen. We'll bring uh, your worship to our close singing from Psalm 73 in the Scottish Psalter. Psalm 73 is on page 316. Psalm 73 at verse 23 Nevertheless continually, O Lord, I am with thee. Thou dost me hold by my right hand and still upholdest me. Thou with thy counsel while I live wilt me conduct and guide. And to thy glory afterward receive me to abide. Whom have I in the heavens high but thee, O Lord, alone? And in the earth whom I desire besides me, thee there is none. My flesh and heart doth faint and fail, but God doth fail me never, for of my heart God is the strength and portion for ever. Psalm 73 verses 23 to 26, and we stand to sing. <coughs>
Father may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest upon and abide with you all, now and forevermore. Amen.